Well, take your Bibles and open to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. What we're doing on Sunday nights, maybe you're a guest, maybe you've been uh, away for a bit, is we're looking at 66 snapshots of God. What we're doing is looking at each book of the Bible in one sermon. It's not so much a survey that would, that would be a worthy study in and of itself. Uh, it's not so much a, an outline or overview. Is what we're doing is just trying to see a snapshot of God from each book of the Bible. Look at the, the theological context. What is, what is God saying to us about himself? What is God saying to us about his expectations? How is he presented? So we've come now to the fifth book of Moses, Deuteronomy. As you know, Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible, which is part of the Pentateuch. Really good. Uh, The Pentateuch is the first five books of Moses, which constitutes the law. Good. And this is the final book of the law. It's an interesting book. It's both historical and sermonic. It's a review and a preview. The events that take place in the book of Deuteronomy occur in Moab, which is just to the east of the Jordan, right before they're going to come in and take the land of Israel that was promised to them. After escaping from Egypt from the, the hand, with the hand of God, with the grace of God to pull them out of slavery in Egypt, to now put them on what we call the desert, the plains of Moab. And they're just across the Jordan and We're at a critical juncture in the history of Israel. It may interest you to know that Moses is now 120 years old. 120. He knows he's about to die. God has told him he's about to die. God has also told him the nation of Israel is now about to go across the Jordan and inherit the promised land, but but you can't go. God said, speak to the rock. And he hid it. And because of that presumption, God was going to disallow him to go into the promised land. But if you would ask Moses right now, I don't think he has any complaints. Absent from the body and present with the Lord. Moses knows he's about to die. This is his swan song. These are the final sermons that Moses preaches to an older and newer generation. And what I mean by that is the older generation has died off, but they're still in the memory of the younger generation. It's been 40 years because of their disobedience that they had to die off in the wilderness. The new fresh generation is now poised to go across the Jordan, inherit the land, but they weren't firsthand hearers to the original giving of the law in the book of Exodus. So... Like any good preacher, Moses re-preaches his sermons. He goes back to the law from Exodus, both captures it, encapsulates it, and then puts what we call theological writers on it. You know what a writer is? A writer is like a, a, in a contract. You have uh, explanations and, and different uh, contractual elements you add to that. Well, Moses adds sermonic features to the law he's already preached. You can see that very well spelled out even in the Ten Commandments. Read the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5 and compare them to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And you'll see that there's a lot of, a lot of little footnotes that he adds in there. Uh, little extra explanations that he puts. Moses is preaching on the law. If you want it straight, Deuteronomy is really a series of expository sermons. 
Moses is calling this new generation to obey God in the freshness of this gift of the land, but also in contrast to their parents. There's a lesson there. God forbid that any of our kids come to the position where they want to live at a higher standard than us as parents. It's a great reminder that we are daily living in front of our our children and the younger men and women in our church, a legacy, an example. Everybody is being watched at some level. And God made really a horrific example of this older generation who had to die out and now their kids are about to go into the promised land but Moses wants to make sure that they get it, that they understand God and they understand what God expects before they go into the land that he reserved and promised for them. He reviews and preaches on the law and he gives it a second time, which is why the Greek word for Deuteronomy from nomos and and, and the word for two means second law giving. He's reviewing, he's recapturing. Now, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy begins with, with the retelling of the experiences of the past 40 years in chapters 1 through 4 and a half, 1 through 5. It's a history lesson. It's what they'd done in their travel, in their journey, the, the things that God had done for them and through them in the defeat of different enemies and different conquerors that wanted to wipe them off the face of the, literally the wilderness. So Moses tells them the the, uh, the history, and then in chapter 5, he restates the 10 words of Moses or the 10 commandments. And I, I think it would be a great uh, survey, a great study for you to do sometime, either by yourself, with your family, with your husband, with your wife. It's just to sit, one of you with an open book in Exodus 20, one with an open Bible in Deuteronomy 5, and read them and see how Moses takes the law in, in Exodus 20 and he preaches it. And gives just color as he recaptures the Ten Commandments. Then you come to chapter 6. And we're going to spend some time in chapter 6. Because that's the epicenter of the entire book of Deuteronomy. It's the theological epicenter. It's the practical epicenter. It's the applicational epicenter. Everything flows up to chapter 6. And everything flows from chapter 6. And again, we'll pull the car over in just a minute and look at that. Moses tells the people that they that he is going to die before they enter the promised land. We'll look at that in a few moments. And he appoints Joshua as the new leader. Now, looking at the book of Deuteronomy from the highest altitude, Moses gives the Israelites three reasons they ought to obey God. And we're getting the, the, the grandest perspective, the furthest back perspective we can get. He wants them to know three reasons to renew their obedience to God. Now, you have to remember something. The word renew is actually a little bit deceptive, um, but it's hard to find the right word. This older generation didn't live and then die. The newer generation then was born, and they were instantly 20-plus years, 40-plus years old. There was a lot of overlap. There was a lot of teaching, lots of sermons, lots of worship in the tabernacle. So what the younger generation had been seeing was the consequences of the older generation's lack of faithfulness. But remember this, boy, if there's, if there's one lesson to learn from reading the Bible and studying your own heart is that no one is all one thing. 
Oh, it's so easy to say, he's that, she's that. People are pretty complicated. No one is all one thing. This generation had to die because of their uprising against Moses, because of the, the golden calf, because they said they wanted, a, they wanted the God of Israel represented in a cow. But even though that generation sinned and needed to die out, it didn't mean that they had no obedience during that time. It didn't mean that they didn't try to follow God's promises in that time. This is a renewal. They had to die out and they knew it. Imagine they're 40 years in a desert, a horrifically hot, scorpion and snake-laden environment, sleeping in tents, 120 plus degrees in the summertime, very, very frigid winds that would get down in the teens in the winter. That's where they lived for a generation, longing for the land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. Well, these three reasons, as I said, for this new generation to renew or to recapture or to commit to obedience of God are basically three, and I'm summarizing. First of all, because of God's history to his people. That's what those first four chapters are about. Look at what God has done for you in the past, and because of what God has done in the past, you can trust him and, and, and anchor yourself on him and believe him and in the future. God's history of the goodness to his people was a reason to renew their commitment to him. Secondly, the goodness of God's laws. This is so interesting. We look at the law of God from our perspective, especially as New Testament Christians, and it's easy for us to say, oh, those poor Israelites under the law, 636 requirements and expectations. And and we look at that and say, those poor people, they say just the opposite. Read Psalm 119. I'll all uh, 150 plus verses of it. Read that and remember that the writer is talking not about the scriptures in general, though all those principles apply. The writer is talking about the law. Why would there be such exoneration and love for the law? They just came out of Egypt. The gods of Egypt had undefined expectations for the Egyptians. You woke up every morning not knowing if God was in a good mood, a bad mood, if he was going to send a famine or a drought, if he was going to send rain and flood. You had no idea. So they came up with ways to manipulate God and and, uh, cajole God to their favor. Well, when God gives the law in this second giving, especially, and again, we'll talk about this in chapter six, he's saying, this is what I expect. I am completely, this is great, predictable. This is who I am. This is what I expect. expect. There's no guesswork with me. There's no wondering. There's no, no uh, trying to figure out what kind of mood I'm in. I, I never change. This is who I am. It was a gracious gift to have the law. Don't ever look back at, at Israel and say, oh, those poor people, they're under law and we're under grace. No, they were under law and grace and we are under grace and the law of Christ, James says. So it's both ends. Same God with the same expectations, the same way of salvation, justification by faith alone in what God has revealed. So God's history, his goodness to his people, the goodness of God's laws, that's another reason to renew the covenant. And thirdly, God's unconditional promises of blessings for the future. God told the nation, I will take you from Egypt and I will place you in the land. Even though some disqualify themselves from that inheritance, including Moses, 
he still is going to fulfill that unconditional promise to their children. As I said, Deuteronomy means second law. The author is Moses. We know that from chapter 31. Has 34 chapters, 959 verses, 28,352 words. And this is important. Think about this. Deuteronomy is mentioned, referenced, and quoted more than any other book in the canon of Scripture. Let me go one more. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy more than any other book. Someone is a, 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 a commentary on Deuteronomy, and it's called Deuteronomy, Jesus' Favorite Book. Now, we don't know that for sure, but it's certainly the one that we have record of him quoting most often. It's the reiteration and the recounting of God's history with the nation, of his exodus of his people, his faithfulness in the wilderness. And the whole book is a series of sermons designed to preach to the people that they should obey because of who God is and what God's done. If you want a, a takeaway, we obey because of who God is and what God has done. And this side of the cross, we have even deeper reasons to rejoice in his acts. The book actually covers two months of history. And the purpose, again, is to call every believer in Yahweh, that's God's covenant name to the people, I am who I am, every believer in Yahweh, to faithful covenants of obedience because of God's faithfulness on his covenant to the people. I've made promises to you, and whether or not you keep them, God says, I will keep my end. Just think of the covenant nature of God. He's a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. We typically are a promise-making and not always a promise-keeping people. And so are these folks. If you want an outline, five main sections. Uh, the first four chapters is Moses' first sermon. It's a history lesson. It's a review of the journey to the promised land and, and the wilderness wanderings. It provides the historical basis of God's faithfulness and why he should be followed. The second sermon is chapters 5 through 26. And that's a restatement of the law with Moses' sermonic commentary. This is what God said. This is what it means. In fact, it's so similar to what we do week in and week out, especially on Sunday mornings marching through Mark. We read the text. We make comments about what it means. We collate it with other scriptures. And we try to apply it. It's exactly what chapters 5 through 26 are. Thirdly, it's a reemphasis of the responsibility for renewing the covenant. That's chapters 27 through 30. It's a reemphasis of the responsibility for renewing the covenant. God says, I just want to remind you newbies what I've done, who I am, what I've said, and what I expect. And you need to commit to me to follow my expectations and my obedience. The fourth section is not really a, a sermon. It's, 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 a, it's a song. It's a song that Moses sings, chapters 31 and 32. And it is dense. It is rich with theology. Aaron, we ought to, we ought to make note sometimes as we, as we sing songs. There are phrases that we sing over and over that come directly from the song of Moses. And then lastly, in chapters 34, 33 and 34, it's Moses' benediction. It's his final blessing. It's his death. It's his swan song. It's his 
burial. And you know where he's buried? You better not, because nobody does. An angel buried him. And no, that, was, that was the grace of God, too, that no one would set up a memorial and a, and a, and a big uh, cathedral and say, this is where Moses was. God said, no, you're not going to worship his body. He's going to come be with me. Now, the dominant theological theme in this book is the renewal of God's promise and covenant and Moses' call, because of that, to obedience. Now, what I want to do is just give you kind of a, a smattering of, of, of overview of that, and then we're going to dive into chapter 6 for a moment. Just listen. You're welcome to turn here, but we're going to move pretty fast. These are gracious, this is the title for tonight, gracious reintroductions of God's goodness and grace. He's already told them who he is. He's already explained his expectations. Now he retells them. First of all, chapter 4, verse 1. I'm just going to oil up the spines of our Bible and, and have a little, little progress. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform. There's an immediate expectation of application. So that you may live long and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. It's a part of the covenant. That's a part of the promise. I intend for you to go and enjoy the land. I intend for you to go and live long and prosper in the land. Long before some Vulcan said live long and prosper, God said it through Moses. Deuteronomy 4, 6. So keep and do them. These are the commandments. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this is a great nation and is wise and understanding people. What he's saying there is, listen, and this is so practical for us. Obedience to God is actually one of the most powerful witnessing tools in the arsenal of the life of a believer. People should say, why do you live that way? Why do you obey that? Why do you not do this? Why do you do that? It was to be provoking and provocative. Look at 4.13. So God declared to you his covenant, which he's command, he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. The Ten Commandments are very critical for the life of any Old Testament believer. They also have relevance for you and me. I remember when we spent some time in Deuteronomy a few years ago talking about an illustration that was um, uh, uh, really interesting to consider. There was a school, an elementary school in Alabama, that was adjacent to a church. And uh, the school in that district, for whatever reason, had voted to take the Ten Commandments as a placard out of the school. Maybe you heard this, this law when they did that. Well, the church, try, trying, I think, probably in, in the best of motives to respond put the Ten Commandments on giant, a giant billboard and faced it toward the school so that the kids, as they walked to school every day, would see the Ten Commandments, which had been taken out of the, of the, of the school building. Well, you may applaud, but the commandments were facing the wrong direction. <laughs> the commandments were for the redeemed community to put into their lives, listen, as sanctifying grace, not justifying grace. The commandments were for those who had already committed themselves for the Lord, to the Lord. This is how someone lives as a believer. That's what the Ten Commandments are for. Now, I'm not against Ten Commandments in the school, but I'd rather have them facing our church and us seeing them than out from the church. 
Listen to Deuteronomy 30, verses one to three, going all the way to the end. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call then to mind all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart, your soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity? This is a foreshadowing of the Assyrian and the Babylonian captivity and the the recipe for getting out of captivity. What was the recipe? To undo and repent from the things that got them into the Babylonian and the Assyrian captivity. To obey, to go back to the beginning, to go to the statues. And God will have compassion on you, will gather you again from all the people's where the Lord your God has scattered you, and he did, from Assyria and from Babylon. Look down at verse eight, chapter 30. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe his commandments, all his commandments which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand and in the offspring of your your body and the offspring of your cattle and, and the produce of the ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good just as he rejoiced over your fathers. If, if, verse 10, you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in this book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. You say, wait, wait, wait a minute. Isn't that health, wealth, prosperity teaching? I think sometimes we, we, we shy away because we so rightly look at people on, on the television who say, if you do this, God will do that. When you're trying to manipulate God, that, that's a wrong, false way of, of, uh, of understanding theology. But this is the right way. There is blessing, tangible blessing in the obedience of God's ways and God's laws. Read the book of Proverbs. It's all over the place. Is it a guarantee? Not always. Ask the martyrs if that was a guarantee. But I promise you this. They had, as Christopher Love said, a bitter supper, but a glorious breakfast with the Lord. For this commandment which I'm commanding you today, verse 11, is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. Isn't verse 11 encouraging? No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, God is faithful, will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Nothing is too difficult. No one, none of us, and this is a good thing, not not a condemning thing. None of us can look at the commands that God's given us and say, that's too much. He's asking me too much. No, it's not. I'm not telling you what to do with your Bible, but Deuteronomy 30 verse 11 is an underliner. It is not in heaven that you should say who will go up to heaven for, for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say who will cross the sea for us to get it for us to, to make us hear it that we may observe it. But the word is very near to you. It's accessible in your heart that you may be able to what? Obey, observe it. <clears throat> See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that you may live and multiply that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering in to possess it. But 
But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you're going, uh, where you are crossing in the Jordan to, to enter to possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord Lord swore to you, your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Is that powerful? That's incredible. God honors those who honor him. God judges and curses those who are against him. Now, the epicenter of this thinking, the, 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 really the, the kind of the, the fountainhead of theology and praxis or practical application in the book is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So turn there for a moment. We're just going to spend a, a brief minute here because this, is, uh, this ought to be really familiar territory in, in your Bibles. I'm just going to give you a really gentle little, um, general rather, um, I hope it's gentle, uh, outline that you can kind of grab onto some things. It's all about obedience. Why, how, who? Listen to this. This is so powerful. First of all, number one, obedience has a definition. I think I'm going to give you, I don't, I don't remember the count, five. Obedience has a definition. Verse one. Now this is the commandment. Stop right there. He's going to give lots of commandments in Deuteronomy. What is the commandment? The statutes, the judgment, which the Lord has commanded me to teach you. There is a central command. We'll see it in a moment. But basically, Moses is saying obedience has been defined by God. We are not like those, the pagans then or now who grope around wondering what in the world does God expect? Who is he? What is he like? It has a definition. God's graciousness has given us what he expects and who he is. Harkens all the way back to chapter 5, verse 31. But as you stand, as for you, stand here by me that I may speak to you all the commandments, the statutes, the judgments which you shall teach them that they may observe them in the land which I give them to possess. That's God to Moses, Moses to the people. Obedience is defined. It has a definition. And the definition is the law, the word of God. Secondly, obedience has a target. Obedience has a target. Look in the middle of verse 1. So that you might do. It says do them in the New American Standards. It's literally that you would obey. You would do. In the land where you are going over to possess it. There's a target. Commandments are not given. History is not recited so that we can be smarter. It's always given so that we can see the greatness, the glory, the goodness, the kindness, the magnetism of God's attributes. And it has a, an abiding effect on our hearts. It's targeted toward obedience. Obedience has practical implications. Now, now that sounds like, well, of course, no. 
Obedience practical implications are attached to God. Psychologists, the cults, other religions can teach people to obey strict standards. But that's not what's being talked about here. How do we know? Let's keep going. Thirdly, obedience has a legacy. So that you and your son and your grandson, look at the legacy there, might fear the Lord your God to keep comprehensively all his statutes, his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life. A lot of all's in there. A lot of comprehensive understanding. Obedience has a legacy. Remember, the older generation should have modeled this for the younger. And I'm sure they did in some categories, but not in the, in the big sin of the golden calf. But there's also another part of that legacy, and that's not what we inherited, but us and who follows us. Your son, your grandson. What is your legacy? What is your spiritual legacy? Legacy, that's what Moses has in mind here. Has a legacy. Fourthly, obedience has consequences. It has consequences. Now I'm gonna break this down into three consequences in verses two and three. First of all, the first consequence is uh, what we've talked about it already is longevity. That your days may be prolonged. Those who obey have longer lifespans than those who don't, primarily because sin can have physical consequences. You ever looked at someone who's had a really sordid and sinful background and said, they look like life has been hard on them? Sin has physical consequences. Read Psalm 32 in Psalm 51. Also, obedience has a consequence of well-being. Verse 3, O Israel, that you should listen. You should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you. You'll have a, (laughs) this sounds so so trite. You'll have a better life if you obey God. Pretty simple. Well-being. And also a consequence of benefits. Keep reading in verse 3. That you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord The God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. There's children or the enjoying the benefits of of a life well lived or the blessings of food and clothing and shelter. That comes from to to those who obey. Now, again, I'm not preaching health, wealth, gospel. We're just taking God at his word. And then number five, this is the rest of the chapter. Obedience has relationship. Obedience has relationship. This is where it gets very, very personal, beginning in verse 4. Hear, O Israel. This is what we call the great Shema. This is the anchor to the uh, Israelites. It still is to the day, to this day in the, in the Jewish community. Listen, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Now, there's a lot of debate over what that means, the Lord is one. I think primarily what it means is you just came from Egypt, which had a God for everything. We have one God, and he's the only one God. It's the exclusivity of God and the central characteristic of God. I know, and I preach, and I teach, and I believe that God is Trinity. He is he's three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but he is one God. So What? So what? Look at the relationship. So you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all 
your soul, and with all your strength, with all your might. The comprehensive nature of our love for God has nothing in our life in the shadow. What do we say in our mission statement? In every dimension of life as regulated by the word of God, right? There's no part of our lives that are uncared for, unregulated, unnoticed by God. And our love for him, just like the Israelites, is to involve every dimension and category of our life. These words, which I'm commanded to you, verse six, shall be on your heart. Memorize them, know them. Think about this. These people didn't have a Bible. The only way they would remember and apply is they had to be on their heart and in their memories. You shall teach them diligently the relationship again with us to God and God to our legacy. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. That's again a comprehensive description of life. Life is always a classroom. Every part of our life is a classroom with us before God and with God through us to others. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be funnels on your forehead. Now, uh, the phylacteries that, that Jews wear today with these little leather um, uh, uh, satchels that, that are hung off their foreheads and off of their arms with the law kind of tiny written in there, that's not what this is talking about. He's talking about perpetual reminders to obey. Bind them as a sign on your hand. They will be as frontals on your forehead. In other words, create your all of your living space as sacred space to remind us of God. Look at it goes on. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I love to walk into someone's house and see scripture on the walls and post-it notes on the bathroom mirror with, with verses you're thinking about. That's what this is talking about. This is not decoration. This is reminders. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give to you great and splendid cities which you did not build, houses full of goods which you did not fill, and huge cisterns which you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. When you get the blessings of God, oh, friends, look at verse 12 and watch yourself. Watch yourself. Why? That you do not forget the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You know, it's interesting when we have great needs, we pray for God to fulfill these needs, and, and he does. How quickly we can forget him a source. Forget those sleepless nights, those prayerful times. Moses is saying this, so that won't happen. You shall fear only the Lord your God. You shall worship him and swear by his name. That doesn't mean you, you, you say, I swear in the name of God. What that means is your word is attached to your integrity, linked to his, your reflection of him. You shall not follow other gods and any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. 
For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you. He will wipe you off the face of the earth. And they should know that because they just saw their parents' generation. That happened to them. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Mesa. That was the water. That was the rock. You should diligently keep the commandments of the Lord and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may be well with you, that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore to your fathers by driving out your enemies before you the Lord, as the Lord has spoken. And then verse 20, parents, grandparents, Young people and old, singles who may be parents and grandparents. Mark verse 20. There is such an assumption here. When your son, you can say or daughter, asks you in time to come saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? It ought to be the natural flow of a, of a godly home where standards are different from the world. Movies are different from the world. Hobbies and habits are different from the world. Language is different from the world. That sometime, kids begin to say, we're different. Why do we do these things that we do? And what does this mean? Moses says, that better happen And when it does, you better have an answer. And it's more than we're Christians. He's a full explanation. Look at what the answer he gives him. Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. The Lord brought us up from Egypt with the mighty hand. Looking at salvation history physically, we look at salvation history spiritually. Verse 22, moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. He brought us up uh, from there in order to bring us in to the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good, for our good, and always for our survival as it is today. And then all all this swells to the relational dimension of verse 25. It, obedience, it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God just as he commanded us. That's not works-based salvation. That's, how, that's a salvation that works itself out in obedience. It's our righteousness. It's remarkable. We've spoken a lot in chapter six or read a lot about love. You might be interested to know that the first time we read about God's love for Israel and the requirement for Israel to love God is in the book of Deuteronomy. Why did God love Israel? This is echoed in Exodus 32, 33, and 34. And it's echoed uh, in the latter five chapters of Deuteronomy. Why did God love Israel? You know what the answer to that is? Because he loved Israel. Why would God love you? 
You know what the answer is? It's not because you're handsome or pretty, cute or athletic, nice or better than anyone else. It's the most wonderful mystery in the universe that God would look to any sinner with a disposition of love and offer the death of his son to pay for the sins of anyone who would believe the gospel. Main takeaway, turn over to chapter 10. This is the summary, two verses. I think it takes all of chapter six, really, and this is where it, this is an underliner, if you want, want that again. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. Now, Israel, what does the Lord, your God, require from you? Good question. Now he answers, but to fear the Lord your God, to have a reverence for him that he is God, we are not. He is holy, we are sinful. He is Lord, we are slave. He is master, we are follower. To walk in his ways and love him. Jesus said, I'll know that you love me when you obey me. And to serve the Lord, worship the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. I love this. For your what? Your good. So to look at Deuteronomy is to look at the fact that God is a reintroducer. He's a God of gracious reintroductions. Older generation failed, died. Younger generation need to be re, needed to be reintroduced to God, his ways, his statutes, his laws, his attributes, his expectations. And that's why I think the book of Deuteronomy is the most quoted book in the Old Testament and in the New. It makes sense. If Deuteronomy is the summary and the, the sermonic content of the law, the application of the law, wouldn't it make sense that every prophet, the psalmists, the historians, the kings would all look back to Deuteronomy? You know how um, you've probably been to conferences and I've been to my share and I've been on the speaking end and on the, on the, the participant end. And I was in uh, South Africa of all places, several years ago, on stage with a group of speakers, and I knew my place. I was just trying to be as quiet as possible, just let them answer all the questions. They were far wiser than me. But toward the end, the guy, the moderator, said, I want to ask all of you one question. It was kind of unexpected. If you could have any Christian begin their understanding of God and the Bible and the gospel by reading one book in the Old Testament as a first book, not the only book, and a first book or one book in the New Testament, what would you, what would you suggest? Pastor Holland, why don't you go first? <laughs> I really wanted to be last on that one. My in intuition and my instinct was start in the Old Testament with Deuteronomy. And in the New Testament, I said start with John. 
I think you could make an argument for any book in the Bible, honestly. You really could. Do you know Deuteronomy? Do you own the message of Deuteronomy? Do you respect and appreciate Deuteronomy? Do you hear God? Do you hear God through the second giving of the law?